We're going to be in John chapter 4 this morning in our study. And as you're turning there, I want to take a moment to dismiss our children upstairs for kids crew worship. They're going to meet here at the front and then head upstairs with our leaders. This is for kids who are elementary age and down. Time of worship designed specifically for them. John chapter 4, we're looking at a passage that relates to worship today. Really, we're going to relate it to worship. Can I say that? As we study the story of Jesus with the woman at the well. One of my very favorite stories in the Gospels. We've been studying for several weeks now the idea of vision. The vision that the Lord would have us to live by. And and of course we've week after week emphasized the fact that there's a difference between sight and vision. Between seeing things and having vision. Vision is seeing the way God would have us see, seeing with spiritual eyes as we're using it, as we're defining in this sense, that we want to see as the Lord sees so that we might do as the Lord would have us do as we follow his path, as we walk in his way. And so each week we've looked at a different way that this God-given vision leads us as the people of God. And really, each of these are the purposes of the church, what I would identify as the purposes of the church. So we've seen how vision drives mission how vision drives evangelism, discipleship, community or fellowship among the body, and then today worship. These five purposes of the church, these five things that we do together corporately as the people of God, as the body of Christ, when we gather together, these are important parts of the life of any church. And we're going to see even in this particular passage today how that relates to our worship. But I need to first... Uh, I can't let what Doug said at the beginning of the service go. I have to say to you that it has been a wonderful nine years as your pastor. Can you believe it? Nine years have gone quickly. In fact, there are a lot of ways that you can measure time over the last nine years. Things that have happened. You think about where you were, how your life was different maybe in February of 2011 than it is in in February now of 2020 and what's changed over nearly the last decade together. Did you know that if I make it to this summer and I say that somewhat tongue in cheek, I mean, Lord willing, we understand the book of James tells us that we don't know what tomorrow holds, but, but I hope by let's say midsummer to still be your pastor, uh, that the Lord hasn't called me home. Although that wouldn't be too bad either. I suppose if the Lord did call me home, at least not for me, I would be the winner in that scenario. But But if I'm still here, when I'm still here this summer, God willing, I will move up the list, if you want to think of it that way, the ranks of tenure among pastors in front of a name that you may not know, but a name that I personally revere, the name R.C. Miller, that uh, if, if when I get to this summer, I will have been pastor at First Baptist Church longer than R.C. Miller was pastor. He was pastor here from February of 1946. That was a while ago, if you think about it, until the early summer of 1955. And I will climb up the ranks in front of R.C. Miller to follow only J.M. Bruner, Mark Harden, and Johnny Timms in terms of tenure among the ranks. Now, I know that. You don't have to know all of that, I guess. The reason I know that is because uh, I'm a student of First Baptist Church. I know our church's history well. I know the story of who God has called us to be and what God has done and what we pray that he can continues to do in our midst 
as a church body. And part of the reason I know that is because, uh, for one, I just really enjoy it. But two, because when, when I came to pastor you, this church became more than just a job for me. This became in very many ways a part of my own personal story, even in, in, to some degree a part of my own personal identity that the Lord has called me to lead and, and to serve in this capacity in this season of my life in this time. But more than that, that I became a part of the story of what God is doing in this church, just as you all have a part to play in that story of what God is doing. And it's an important story that's being told because since this church's humble beginnings in December of 1892 to the present day, the First Baptist Church of Chickasha has been a people driven by a mission given by God that we would reach this community for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've done that for a number of years. By the way, if you ever want a really interesting read about our church's history, you can find it on our website. If you go to our website, which is fbcchickasha.org, that web address is printed in your bulletin in case you, you don't want to have to write it down or worried about will you get all the right letters in the right order and all that. But you can go to our website and there on our website under the about tab, there's a section that says church history and you can read a pretty lengthy history of First Baptist Church of Chickasha. It's a good read. I would encourage you someday when you've got a free minute jump on the website and read it. But a part of the story of this church has been from the time we were founded to now that God has been moving in our midst to help us reach people around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And should God tarry another 128 years into the future, my sincere prayer and my desire is that we will have been a part of building so that in the future, that mission continues. That purpose continues to drive people with that same mission, that we would be driven by a vision to do what God has called us to do as the people of God. Well, how do we know what that vision is unless we go to the Lord? How are we gonna know what God wants us to do unless we, we go before him and say, Lord, show me your will, show me your vision, give me direction for my life. That's exactly what we're doing as we study the word week after week. We're saying, Lord, direct us. We're saying, God, steer the ship, so to speak that you are the rudder, you are the one that steers this ship, that you would lead us in the direction that you would have us go, that we might accomplish your will and your purpose in our lifetime, in our generation. And that's what we've, that's what we've been about as a church. And by God's grace, that's what we wanna to continue to be as his people in the future. And so I would encourage you, as you think through the implications and in, in many ways the the application of this message this morning, that you would do so with this mindset. That God has been working in this church for a long time and he's brought me here at this point, in this time, in the story of this church to be a part of it as he would see fit and that I wanna be a faithful steward so that someday when it's my turn to hand that baton off to the next generation, that what we give them would be a lasting legacy of people who love the Lord and who are intent on serving him and honoring him together corporately as a body. That's who we are. That's who we want to be. We have a mission to love all people to Christ and to multiply disciples. That's the mission of our church. And so we want to do that faithfully and well. In John chapter 4 this morning, we find a story where the, where the Savior himself, Jesus, is speaking to a woman at the well. And he's, he's there to... If, 
what we see with, with, with hindsight and, and through the lens of the gospel writer here who's telling the story, we understand this is a divine appointment, that Jesus has met this particular woman at this particular place at this particular time for a divine appointment, for a special reason. But for this woman, this just is a chance encounter that happens. And in this chance encounter, she finds that her life is transformed. Now, here's what I want you to know today, even before we dig in and study this word. For you, being at church this morning might feel like a chance encounter. Even if it's your, your habit to be here week after week, to gather together with this body and this people week after week in this place, you just got up this morning and you got ready because it was your routine, because it was just what you do. Or maybe perhaps it's not a part of your routine, but nonetheless, you're here today, but you don't really have this, this, uh, this idea, this mindset that this is a, a divine moment, an inspired, a God-inspired, foreordained point in history where the Lord wants to speak and he wants to do something that would transform my life. To you, it just feels like a regular Sunday morning, perhaps. But God, in his wisdom and, and, and according to his plan, I believe has set this as a divine appointment in each of our lives, just as it is every Sunday when we gather together. That this is a moment when God has a word to speak to us, and we want to hear that word today so that we might respond in faithful obedience to it, believing that the word, when obeyed, has power to transform in our lives. And that's what we want to do together. And so I, I guess I'm, what I'm saying is that this is no average Sunday. Today, January, or excuse me, February the 9th, 2020, is a special day because this is the day that God has this word to speak to us, that we might hear it, that we might apply it to our lives, and that it might transform us. And so let's go to him today and let's, let's with expectation, let's say, Lord, speak and move in our midst today. So we read in John chapter 4, the story of Jesus and the woman at the well, that when Jesus learned, the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone to the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now let's pause there for a minute because there's a lot of background history here that plays into what we've just read in these nine verses. And I want to take just a moment to, to speak to that, to sort of set the stage. Because if we understand that background, if we understand what's happening here as the, the context behind this interaction, then I think it makes what Jesus says in a moment all the more profound in the way that he speaks this word of truth to this woman. So Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was of the house of David. David was Judean. That means that if you go all the way back to the sons of Israel, the original uh, 12, if you will, of the, that the 12 tribes of Israel are derived from, Israel being a man, he had 12 sons, and one of his sons was a son named Judah. And Judah became one of, at least the descendants of Judah, became the 
really in many ways, the uh, leaders, the forebearers, they became the, the most revered house or the most revered tribe of the 12 tribes, primarily because of David and the lineage of David and the promise of God that he would send a descendant through the line of David that would reign over the house of Israel forever. And so they saw the Judeans as sort of a priestly family. But what happens in the the years following David's reign and the, the reign of his son Solomon is that the kingdom is divided into two parts. And so you have the northern 10 tribes, which are descendants of 10 of the sons of Israel. And then you have the southern two tribes, which are descendants of two of the other sons of Israel. So you've got Judah and the Levites, and then you've got the northern 10 tribes, which there's a lot of names and don't test me because I won't get them all right. But that you have the northern tribes and the southern tribes. Well, in 722, the Assyrians capture the northern kingdom, the northern 10 tribes, and they carry off many of the nobility from amongst the, the northern tribes who at this point are known as the Israelites. Once the kingdom divides, you have the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah as they're known. And so from the kingdom of Israel, when the, when the Assyrians capture the Israelites, they carry off many of their, many of their uh, well, the people who are of influence. That's the easiest way to think of it, the, the ruling class. And then they, if, to, to use a word here somewhat loosely, they sort of cross-pollinate by bringing in a number of people from other areas that, that they had conquered, other lands and peoples that they had conquered, and they, and they planted them or they settled them in Israel and in, in amongst the, the northern tribes or the lands of the northern tribes, and those people began to intermarry with the remaining Israelites. And what emerged from that was a race that were known as the Samaritans. The Samaritans derived their name in large part from the king Omri, who was one of the kings of the northern tribes, who established Samaria, a city that he established Samaria as the capital of the northern tribes. And so these, these people, this race that, that came from the work of the Assyrians in conquering and carrying off the Israelites, bringing other conquered peoples to settle in the land, and then the, the, what happens over time is this new race emerges, this new ethnic group uh, emerges as a result of that. The Samaritans now have a lot of rivalry against the the Jews. The Jews are the descendants of Judah and so from the southern tribes. The descendants of the southern tribes weren't captured until 596, some years later. And at that point, the Babylonians had conquered the Assyrians and it was the Babylonians who conquered Judah in 596, about 150 years after the, the time that the Israel, uh, the, the northern tribes of Israel were captured. Now, that's, I'm blowing through large portions of ancient Hebrew uh, history here, and I know I'm just hitting a few highlights, but this is, this is why all of this is important. Because you have this, this rivalry that exists between Jews and Samaritans that, that runs deep. In fact, in the year 400 BC, the, the Samaritans established their own temple. They built their own temple atop 
a mountain known as Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim was within view of the very place where Jesus is seated at the moment that he is meeting with this woman at the well because Jesus is meeting with this woman at Jacob's well. Jacob's well was located on a piece of land that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. When the Israelites left out of Egypt in the time of the conquest under the leadership of Moses and they came to the promised land. They returned back to the promised land. They brought with them the bones of Joseph and they buried the bones of Joseph a few hundred yards from this very place because on his deathbed, Joseph willed this land to his son Uh, excuse me, Jacob or Israel, willed this land to his son Joseph. And so Jesus is here at the well of Jacob on the land that belonged to the forefather Joseph. And Mount Gerizim is within view. You can see Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans had erected their own temple, not the temple in Jerusalem, the temple of the Jews, but they built their own temple in the year 400. To make matters worse, in the year 113 B.C., The Hasmoneans, who were led by a guy named John Hyrcanus. Now, you may have heard of the Maccabees or the Maccabean Revolt. That's the Hasmonean dynasty. It was a group of Jews who rose up and overthrew the ruling Greek uh, rulers of of their day in in the wake of Alexander the Great, in the years after Alexander the Great and his conquest of Palestine. And so John Hyrcanus leads a group of people to siege the city where the temple is located there at Mount Gerizim and they destroyed it, they raised it, which means that they, they brought it to the ground and destroyed. So that made the bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans all the worse because in 113, the Jews march in and they say, this is a false temple and this is not honoring to God. God told us to build the temple in Jerusalem. This is coming down. And they, they literally conquered the city, destroyed the temple. And so there was this deep rift that was about it was, it was a mixture of religion and, and ethnic. It was a, a mixture, if you want to think of it this way, of spiritual and bloodline that, that ran deep between these two peoples to the point that a lot of scholars will say that the, the most direct route from Jerusalem, which is in the southern part of the kingdom, modern-day Israel, to the north around the Sea of Galilee, the most direct route was directly through the lands of the Samaritans on the west side of the Jordan. But common practice is that if a Jew had to travel north, they would cross the Jordan to the east and travel north through the region known as the Transjordan on the east side of the Jordan River, bypassing the lands of the Samaritans simply to avoid defiling themselves or becoming religiously unclean. What's worse? Let's take it another step further. This is a Samaritan woman. The Jews at this point had passed a law that said one of their religious laws that said that any Samaritan woman was to be considered ritually impure or ritually defiled always. As, so the law says, if you read in the law, that a woman during the time of her menstruation would become unclean and she had to wait for a period of seven days before she could be ritually purified. And the Jews passed a law that said Samaritan women live in this state of being always. And so there's this deep rift that runs between the Jews and the Samaritans. You get the picture, right? That they didn't like one another. So for Jesus to appear to this woman 
and begin to question her, to begin to speak to her. Not only does that raise her eyebrow, but it also causes her to think, what's happening here? What's going on? Why are you talking to me? What agenda do you have? And we learn in just a minute that this is a woman who's used to meeting men who have agendas. This is a woman who was used to interacting with men who wanted something from her. And so she instantly is thinking, what's the deal here? And Jesus tells her, woman, if you knew who was talking to you, you, would, you have literally no idea the power that I have to transform your life. See, the fear was that if Jesus spoke with this woman, if Jesus touched this woman, that he would be made unclean. But what we find again and again is that Jesus touches things that are unclean and makes them clean by his power. Jesus, as the Messiah, as the chosen one of God, has the power to transform what is unclean and to make it clean by, by his own power, the power of God that was within him and his being as the Messiah, as the chosen one, as literally God in the flesh. And so he's about to, he's about to transform this woman's life, and she has no idea. Let's keep reading verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where will you, where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. See, the woman had come to the well about the sixth hour, which is about noon, now, even that in and of itself is telling because typically when women went to the well, they didn't go alone. They went with other women. This was a social gathering. This was a social hour. This was a time when they would go and they would visit together, that, they would, that this was the time that they shared their, their uh, social setting, if you will, the place that they caught up with one another. And not only that, they didn't go in the middle of the day, in the hottest part of the day. Typically, they would go early in the morning and later of the evening to draw water. But the fact that the woman has come to the well in the middle of the day, by herself, tells the story in a nutshell. Because here is a woman who is an outcast. Here is a woman that not only would she have been considered an outcast to the Jews because she was a Samaritan woman, but she was an outcast among her own kind, among her own people, because of the life that she had lived, because of the baggage that she carried, because of the history that she had and the things that she had done and what had taken place in her past so that she came to the well in the middle of the day to avoid people to avoid everyone else. And yet here is the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who has come to the well in the middle of the day that he might meet this woman and that he might transform her life. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, suffice it to say, without even needing to unpack all of that part of her story, suffice it to say that this was a woman with a past and with a history. This was a woman with, with baggage. This is a woman who had been used as the object of men in her life. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, she said in verse 20, talking about Mount Gerizim. Again, they're seated at the well of Jacob. She can point to the mountain where the Samaritans had built the temple that later the Jews had destroyed. And she can say, our father said that we should worship on this mountain. But you Jews say that we should worship in Jerusalem. Which is it? And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Let's not get lost in those things. Let's not, let's not use that as a distraction. I have a word for you, he's saying. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when... Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, Jesus is making a point there. He's making a point that, that, that is important that he's saying as a Samaritan, you Samaritans, you don't understand what it is you worship because long ago you guys abandoned the faith. Long ago, you guys did what you were told not to do. Years ago, your forefathers made decisions that have led down a path of brokenness and pain to the point that today, you don't even understand what it is that you worship. You don't even understand the God that you supposedly worship at this temple or, or the, the God that the Jews worship. You don't understand these things. The Jews understand what they're worshiping. They understand. And yet, even in that, what Jesus is saying is, I've come to, to do away with all of that. I've come to establish something greater, something that will never die, something that will quench you with, with water that you will drink and you will never thirst again, right? He's obviously, he's not talking about physical thirst. He's talking about spiritual things here. Verse 23, the hour is coming, is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Here is where this story becomes all about worship. Here is the moment where Jesus takes everything that's happening with this woman and he makes it about worship. And not, you understand, not worship like singing songs, not like are we singing hymns or praise choruses, are we having an organ or a piano, are we having guitars and drums, or are we, or are we doing it with just a piano and a, and a singer? Like, not, not in that sense, but genuine worship in the sense that we are ascribing worth to the Lord, that we are worshiping, that we are giving him first place, first priority in our hearts and our lives. Jesus is saying there's coming a day when the true worship, real worship, will not be in about a form or a place. It will be about what's in your heart. Do you know the Lord? Do you honor him as first? Do you give him your worship by making him first in your heart? And he says, this is what the Father is seeking. He says, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Then the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. She's saying, I know, that, I know that there's a Messiah that's coming. Even the Samaritans knew because the Samaritans only accepted the teaching of the Pentateuch. But even in the Pentateuch, in, uh, in, in Deuteronomy, it speaks of a second Moses, a second great prophet who would come. It was, the, it was a foreshadowing of the Christ who would come and lead the people of Israel. And so she says, we know that there's a, a Messiah, a chosen one of God, an anointed one of God who will be coming. And Jesus says, don't you understand? That's, that's me. I'm the one. 
I am the one who has come to lead God's people. I am the one who has come to show what genuine worship is about. Now we understand that what happens next in the story is the disciples come back and and the woman goes and she goes into the nearby village and she brings people to, to hear this message of Jesus. She's come and, and see this man who knows everything that I've ever done. And she brings people and she, and, and she brings them to meet this Messiah who's transformed her life, who has changed her through his, through not only the power of understanding, but ultimately through the power of faith as she placed her faith and her trust in him and believed what it was that Jesus was saying to her. But worship here is central to this encounter. The, the woman, when she understands in part that, that this guy is different, this guy is not like other prophets. Clearly, I understand that you're a prophet. Let me ask you a question. Now, whether that was a question of genuine curiosity or whether that was her trying to raise some kind of a, of, of a red herring, some, some kind of a rabbit to chase, some kind of a way to distract Jesus from what he was saying, we don't know for certain. But regardless, Jesus cuts through all of that with the word of truth and says, listen, the day is coming. In fact, the day has now come when the Father seeks after people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. This is the way that we worship God, in spirit and truth. And so what do we learn about worship in this passage? We learn, man, we learn so many powerful things, but there are four lessons. If I can distill this truth into four lessons for us today, I, I want us to see these four important principles. And each of these are related to us living with a vision that God would have us live as the people of God for how our lives are to bring honor and glory to God as we worship him. Worship isn't just singing songs. It's what we can do every day. It's what we ought to do every day as we honor the Lord, as we give him first place. And we're talking about seeing here things that aren't seen. We're talking about the spiritual vision to see. The woman speaks in this passage about she's she's grappling with the truth and she even says i i know the messiah is coming i i see these things i but she only understood in part until jesus speaks the word of truth through all of that says woman i am the messiah i am the one and then in that moment she sees what she what what previously has been hidden from her she sees what she once was unable to see through the eyes of faith and so with eyes of faith this morning what do we learn about our lives as we understand how worship and the power of worship can transform our hearts as the people of God first lesson we learn is this worship is not about your position but your posture it's not about your position but your posture there are two ways that we can understand position in this sense one we could be talking about physical location so when we think of worship as being about our physical location then we we limit worship to what takes place when we gather together in in the church building but you understand the church is not the building the church is the people and worship doesn't happen inside of these walls worship happens in our hearts as we gather together inside of these walls this woman raises the issue with Jesus about the temples, right? Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem, or do we worship here? Or do we worship there? And Jesus says, no, it's not about your physical location. It's, not, it's about your heart, right? Spirit and truth. It's about, it's about the things that are going on within you, not the things that are happening around you. It's about 
posture, the posture of the heart. What do we bring to the Lord? Do we humble ourselves before him? Do we worship him in spirit and truth? Or do we come before the Lord arrogant and prideful thinking it's what I have to bring to him, not what the Lord has for me. It's that, that uh, what I have to offer God is worthy of worship with pride in our hearts. See, when we really worship him, we understand it's not about what we bring. It's what, it's what the Lord has done for us. It's not about... It's not about even a physical position. It's not about, it's not about a, a location, but it's also not about physical position in the sense of, like, do we, are we supposed to stand up? Are we supposed to raise our hands? Are we supposed to bow down? There are a number of ways that the Bible describes for people to worship. The Bible talks about raising our hands to God. The Bible talks about lifting our voices. The Bible talks about dancing as worship. Now, as Baptists, we don't like that one too much, right? So we won't chase that for very long, but the... The Bible talks about lots of different physical parts of worship, ways that we physically are involved. The Bible even talks about stillness. Psalm 4610, be still and know that I'm God. Even in our stillness is a way that we can worship God. There are lots of ways the Bible describes the physical position, but the point is one is not more sacred or better than the other it's because it's not about physical position. It's not about location. It's not about whether I raise my hands, I stand, I sit, I kneel. I, it's ultimately about my heart. When I approach the Lord, where is my heart? What is, my, what is the posture of my heart, so to speak? Am I willing to bring what I am, am before the Lord and, and offer it to him? Am I willing to humble myself and to, and to bring myself low before God in reverence of who he is? Not about position, but about posture, posture of the heart. Secondly, we see that worship is not about things you see, but things you cannot see. Not about things that you see, but things that you cannot see. Spirit and truth, Jesus says. Worship is about spirit and truth. Real worship is about spirit and truth, and it's done in spirit and in truth. Do we see spirit and truth? The woman says, what about, it's about this temple or that temple, it's about this location, it's about, it's about the practices of this particular group of people, the Samaritans, or is it about the practices of this particular group of people, the, the Jews and Jesus? No, it's not, it's not about all of that. It's not about the things that you see, it's about things that can't be seen. It's about what's happening in your heart. It's about spirit and truth. Even when we come before the Lord, when we make worship about the things that we see, so to speak, which is, let's put it this way, the things that are physical, the things that appear real to us. We can so easily make worship about our preferences, right? And we fashion worship in such a way that it's all about what I like. And, and I don't just mean music. The, music is the, uh, the low-hanging fruit there, right? It's so easy for people to pick on musical styles. I like this type of music, or I like that type of music. I like these instruments. I like those instruments. But I'm not even just, I'm talking about even things that are more than that. Physical space. Is the room too dark? Is it too light? Is it, are the, are the chairs comfortable enough? Are they not comfortable enough? Uh, what's the temperature of the room? What's the, right? What are the imagery, the iconography around me, different things that are happening? What the physical space? And we, we so easily make it about all these other things. Jesus is saying, it's not about the things you see. It's about what's happening inside of you. It's not about the world around you. Let's take it a step further. When we make worship about our circumstances, when we find it hard to worship the Lord in maybe in the difficult seasons of life because, because we're broken, maybe because we're angry with God, maybe because we feel unworthy, maybe because we feel unlovable for things that we've done, maybe perhaps it's because we say, Lord, in light of all that's been my past, how could I worship you? Because we feel broken and unuseful and unworthy. 
Jesus says to this woman, just as he would say to us, it's not about all that. It's not about what's in your past. It's not about the baggage that you carry. It's about my power over those things. It's about giving your heart to me and understanding the word of truth and responding in obedience to those things. Worship isn't about what you see. It's about what you can't see. God's love, his forgiveness. Now, we can experience the love of God through the people of God. We experience the love of God in the way that we love and comfort and encourage. We know the truth because we see when people live it out, when people live in obedience to the word of truth. We understand what the spirit that he talks of here because we see the effects of the spirit as he stirs our hearts and moves in our lives. But really, when you try to strip away a lot of that, you understand that we're talking about things that can't be physically seen and yet we know them to be true. And Jesus is saying, that's really what worship is about. Do you worship me in spirit and truth? Do you honor me with your hearts and not just with your lips? Worship is about things that we can't see more than things that we see. Third, we see that worship is not about what you bring, but what you receive. Worship isn't about what we bring, and meaning the, the offering itself. It's not about how pretty we sing. It's not about, it's, it's not about how uh, beautiful the instrumentation is. Worship is not about the physical adornment. How dressed up do we get? Worship is not about... Uh, worship is not about all these things. It's not about what we bring to the Lord. Lord, I'm bringing you my best. The most cleaned up, the the most polished uh, version of myself. And and really, the truth is, to borrow an old phrase, it's like putting lipstick on a pig. Because it's not about what we bring to the Lord because the best that we have to offer is still nothing in his sight. It's not about what we bring, it's about what we receive when we humbly come before God. And the Lord of all creation, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who has power and authority over all things is able to give us water to drink that we would never thirst again. You see, it's not about what we bring. It's about what he brings, what he has done for us, not what we might do for him. And so if you come in this place and you feel like, really this affects us in two ways. If you come in this place and you feel like, man, I, I have so much to give to the Lord. I really, I do. There's so much. I am, you know, I've lived such a good life. I've done such a good job. There's that, that pride of, or that, that sin of pride in our hearts that says, yeah, the Lord, the Lord will really be pleased by me. And we need to be humbled of that. We need to be humbled of that. It's not what we bring. But maybe, maybe you're on the other end of that spectrum and, and you think, but how could I ever, how could the Lord ever receive in light of what I've done, in light of my past? Right, we talked about this a few weeks ago. There's one sin says, I don't need them. The other sin says, they don't need me. And if you come in this place and you feel like, ah, I have nothing to give. But the Lord says, but what you, what you have is what I want. Your past, your brokenness, your pain, your failure, your mistakes. What I want is I want to take all that. I want to make it new by my grace and my power. It's not about what you bring. It's about what you receive. Finally, we see this. Worship is not about your experiences, but God's revelation. Not about your experiences. We live in a day that exalts our experiences so that what we experience becomes the most important thing. And we really, truly, we worship what we experience. We worship what we know. We worship what we can see, what we can grasp, what we believe to be true, what we can observe, what we, what we lay eyes on or, or physically can interact with. We live in a day when, when we hear all the time are things like, well, just, 
be happy, just be who you, who you were made to be, find your inner peace, find truth, you know, things. Are, and it's all about me. The thing that we worship ultimately is ourselves because it's about me. It's about what I want. I don't want anyone to tell me something that I wouldn't want to hear. I don't want any truth that makes me uncomfortable, makes me have to wrestle with my sin. I don't want anyone that would in somehow, in some way, show that I'm a sinner and that I need a Savior. I don't want anything or anyone that would tell me that there's anything wrong with me. And yet what the Word of God says is that we're all broken. The revelation that God brings is that we're all broken. We're all in need of forgiveness. We're all marred by sin and in desperate need of a Savior. But here's the beauty of that story. Is that God, this same Jesus who meets this woman at the well, became that Savior for us. He died on the cross paying a price for sins that he didn't commit so that he might pay the price for your sin and for mine, that he might offer his life as ransom, as payment for our sin, and then he was resurrected from the grave on the third day, thus conquering sin and death, thus proving his power over those things, giving him the authority to forgive sins and do all that he said he would do. Worship is not about our experiences. It's not about how it makes me feel. It's not about, it's not about what I have observed and can see with my eyes. It's not about what I rationally Uh, uh, say that I can understand or relate to. Worship is about the revelation of God, that God has revealed himself to us, that God has made himself known to us in Jesus Christ. And so we worship him as we surrender our lives to him, as we respond to this one, just as Jesus says in verse 26, I who spoke to you am he. Now there's not ever a point in this story, in the way that John, the gospel writer, presents it, where we see that the woman prays a prayer of faith, surrenders her life to Jesus, confesses him as Lord and Savior, but the fruit is there when we read the story. The fruit is there. That The woman goes into the, the, the city, into the village, and she's telling people about the Christ. She's telling them about what he's done. You see the, the proof some, uh, so to speak, in the pudding. Go to verse 39 in particular. If you jump over to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. How could she have a testimony unless she had a story of how God had transformed her life? What is her testimony? This is her testimony. This man who knew everything I had ever done forgave me of my sins. He changed my life. He's given me this Living water, she says. He told me all I ever did. So her life was transformed. Our lives too can be transformed when we place our faith in Jesus. When we trust in him. When we, when we understand it's not about what we experience. It's not about the things that we've seen. It's not, about, it's not about us. Ultimately, it's about what God has revealed. What he has done. What he has shown us to be true principally in the person and the work of Jesus. Would we be willing to surrender our lives to him just as we see that this woman does? So four things, four important lessons about worship here. Worship is not about your position, it's about your posture. Worship is not about what you can see, but what you cannot see. Worship is not about what you bring, but what you receive. And ultimately, worship isn't about your experiences, it's about God's revelation, what he's done. It's not about what we do, it's about what God has done. It's another way to say that. Today, may we understand the, truly the heart of worship that we might 
give God first place in our hearts and our lives and we might respond by surrendering our lives to him. In a moment, we're gonna have a time of invitation, a time of response. And in our time of invitation today, I wonder, maybe you're here this morning and like this woman at the well, for the first time, you're, you're, you're hearing this truth, even if you've heard the gospel before, but for the first time, you're hearing it today with fresh ears or perhaps seeing it with fresh eyes and understanding in a way that you've never understood it before. And today, the Holy Spirit is stirring inside of you that now is the moment. Today is the day that you need to surrender your life to Jesus. Just as this woman saw the one who knew everything that she had ever done. And just as she surrendered her life to him in faith today, you need to surrender your life by faith to Jesus, confessing him as Lord and Savior of your life. Then in our invitation today, friend, you can do that. You just simply would come forward. Our staff will be here at the front. We would, we would lead you in a, in, in a simple prayer of faith where you confess that truth. You admit your sin before God, believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, confessing him as Lord and Savior of your life, surrendering your life to him. And the Bible promises that those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if today is that day for you, then I would encourage you, you would come in our invitation. Speak with our staff. Let us lead you through that prayer of faith that you might confess Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. Maybe you're here today and, and what the Spirit's been doing in your heart, he's been stirring and working on you today that, that if I can just put it simply in a way that might encapsulate all the subtle nuances of, of, of how this might work in, in our many different lives and stories is that God is speaking to you saying that he needs to be first. That in order for you to worship him the way that you should, he needs to be first in your life, have first place in your heart. He needs to be your first priority. And the Lord's speaking to you today and you need to respond by saying, Lord, I want to make you first. You deserve first place, first priority. It's not about what I have. It's about what you've done. It's not about what what I bring. It's about what I receive. It's not about uh, my physical position. It's about the posture of my heart. And Lord, I wanna humble myself before you today that I might honor you in all things, in all ways in my life. Today, you wanna come before the Lord and, and truly, honestly, worship him in that sense. Then if that's you, then during this time of invitation, I would have you know our altars will be open. You can come and kneel here at this place and make this the place of your worship today, that you humble yourself before the Lord. Again, our staff are here at the front. We'd love to pray with you and encourage you or even just listen as you pray and, and, and give word to that, that, that cry of your heart that says, Lord, I wanna make you first, put you first in my life. However God is speaking, however he's stirring, I wanna encourage you that you would make him first, give him first place in your heart today and that you would worship him by surrendering your life to him and all that he's done. And so I wanna lead us in a word of prayer and then after I pray, we'll stand and sing a song of response together and in that time, if the Lord is stirring in your heart, you need to surrender your life to Jesus, you wanna give him first place in your life today, then I encourage you that you would come and you would, you would do that during this time of invitation today. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful 